0: anyone who lives in just about any environment must adapt to the conditions that that environment presents. And every environment has with it, as long as we are in a fallen world, a certain element or degree of danger uh, that accompanies it. And so if we are in an environment that carries with us danger, then we must know, first of all, what those dangers are, And then secondly, we must know how to protect ourselves from those dangers so that we don't find ourselves affected by them. Now, uh, sometimes we look on um, a news report and we'll see images from a, a third world country and we'll see that people walk up and down the streets in one of those countries and everybody's just wearing one of those masks to protect them from uh, sicknesses or from bacteria or from airborne uh, pathogens and toxins and things of that nature. And we look at that and we say, man, what a different world over there. And it's an environment that they need to protect themselves from something that maybe we don't understand in the environment that we're in. And as much as that is true in the physical sense, that there are physical dangers, it's also true in a spiritual sense. And so we translate it into the arena of the kingdom of God, and we recognize that in a fallen world, we have been planted as Christians in a culture and in a society. And because we're called to be a part of the collective entity that we call the church, churches also are planted within an environment that presents certain dangers, and there are certain hostilities. And so it's important for any Christian or any church to recognize what the spiritual dangers are within that culture or society, and then also knowing those things to build the proper protections into our lives so that we're not also then affected by those dangers uh, and we find ourselves uh, um, shipwrecked in our faith in, in some way. Now, if a church, much like the church in Corinth in this day that we're studying here, is in a place that is, would be considered a large city or a place that is influenced by many humans or uh, many different people, uh, and really that's true almost anywhere in the world now just because of, of media and whatnot, then one of the prominent influences that will affect that church is uh, what drives the culture, and that is unbridled sexual expression. And that has been true as long as there has been fallen man upon the world, and it will be true all the way until the time that Jesus comes back. And so if a culture is heavily influenced by that, and certainly we live in a world today where that is a global epidemic, that that is something that affects every one of us, that the whole world has been given over to unbridled sexual expression in an uncontrollable way where it's just kind of expected that it's the norm. But if that's the norm, then you've got to understand then the pressure that that um, expression bears upon the culture is going to seek to influence and make its way into the church. And so it's important for the church to be aware of that and then understand why it's important that we be protected from that, and then to build the proper defenses into ourselves so that we're not carried away with the destruction that those things bring. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians now chapters 5, 6, and into 7, the Apostle Paul is going to address the subject really of sex and the Christian. And you say, is that a word that that, that we use from the pulpit or that we should be, you know, speaking in this way uh, like that? Yes, absolutely. Because sex is something that was created by God and it's created for his purposes and it was created for our our benefit and for our pleasure. But wherein there is a benefit and a pleasure and a a glory that's associated with it. There is also a very extreme danger that's associated with it if it's not uh, kept in the context in which God um, uh, ordained it for. And so the Apostle Paul is going to answer really three things in these next two and a half chapters. The first is how to deal with sexual sin in the church, along with why it's important that we do that. And then secondarily, why sexual purity matters and makes a difference. And then finally, uh, what is the proper place for sex and sexual expression and how all of that is supposed to work? And thank God that he didn't give us something like that, as powerful as that, and not also then give us the instruction that we need. And so the Apostle Paul, beginning now in chapter 5, addresses this issue that had permeated the Corinthian church. He says in verse 1, it is reported commonly... So evidently, it was a matter that was not behind closed doors. This wasn't something that Paul had heard uh, by way of the rumor mill, but it was something that was so uh, outwardly known by everyone that Paul can say it is commonly known by all that there is fornication among you. Now, that word fornication in the Greek is the Greek word pornea, and it's uh, where we would kind of translate into the English the word pornography but the definition of the word what it means in the biblical context is any sexual activity at all outside of the confines of biblical marriage between one man and one woman for life now there is a difference in the bible between adultery and fornication Adultery is when you are married and you go outside of the boundaries of that marriage uh, and express yourself sexually with another person. That's considered adultery. But fornication is when you are not married and there is sexual contact uh, with another person. So that's what Paul is addressing here in this. He says that there is fornication among you and he says it's such fornication or the manner of it as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife or most likely uh, his stepmother, not his uh, biological mother, but uh, his stepmother. And Paul says that, that this thing that you're doing is so outside of the boundaries of what's acceptable that even in the culture there in Corinth where pretty much anything goes, people wouldn't accept Uh, that kind of behavior, that it wouldn't be looked upon as something that is, uh, you know, to be boasted of or a trophy or or some glory in any kind of a thing. And so he says this in response to that now addressing it. He says, and you, your your reaction to this is that you are puffed up or inflated or proud of this thing as though in some way because you're open-minded concerning this, that that's a good thing that because your liberty in Christ has allowed you to do this, that that's okay. You are puffed up and you have not rather mourned or grieved that he that has done this thing might be taken away from you. And so Paul says in this whole thing that your reaction to what is taking place there is completely the opposite of what it should be is that when you should be grieving because the heart of God is grieved over this, you are actually rejoicing and wherein God would think that this man should be gone from your midst, you actually are glad that he is there. And he says that is not a good thing. And so now he gives, uh, begins to give the solution to this. And so he says in verse three, for verily as absent in the body, but present in spirit, I have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed i have i'm not there i haven't heard the case we don't need two or three witnesses we don't have to go down the hallways of church uh, discipline in the whole thing he says i already know what it is that you're to do and how you should act swiftly in this and here it is in verse four in the name of our lord jesus christ when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our lord jesus christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here's the solution to the problem. The problem is fornication. How do we solve the problem? Number one is that you need to mourn over this sin. You need to change your mind concerning the way you look at it and your understanding of it. He says you should grieve in it and you should grieve because you want to be in harmony with the heart of God concerning it. Number 2 is that you need to unify within that heart attitude. You need to have the the, the proper attitude in harmony concerning uh, what you're to do next and then the action that you're to take with this man is that you're to throw him out of the church and you're to throw him out of the church in such a way that he knows that he's being thrown out by Jesus, that it's in the name of Jesus Christ as though Jesus was here looking at him and saying, you have no place in a body of believers in me that have been blood-bought and sanctified by my Holy Spirit. You need to go. And then he says something you know, incredibly, uh, almost frightening concerning the the, the the removal of this man. He says that he is to be delivered unto Satan. You say, what in the world does it mean for someone to be delivered over unto Satan? The Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In another place, he's called the God of this world. Jesus called him the prince of this world. And he is the one that is overruling Satan the affairs and the actions and deeds that are done in the realms of men. He's in control of this world, so to speak. Now, when a person is born again and Jesus comes into their life by the Spirit of God, that person is removed from what we'll call the world and its system and they are placed categorically into what is called the kingdom of God. And they are removed from lordship of Satan, whom the Bible says that he works in the children of disobedience to move them according to his will. And now you are placed under the dominion of another king, that is Jesus, where now you are governed by him and you're set free from the dominion of the one who ruled over you before you knew Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying here is that that person needs to be removed from the covering and from the protection that being a part of the body of Christ affords that person and they need to be given back over into the dominion of the king that they are actually serving by doing this deed that is so contrary to what God uh, wants. And so what the church provides for Christians is first of all, God's protection And secondarily, God's communion. And thus what Paul is saying is that in allowing this man to fellowship in your midst, you are actually enabling him to continue on in his sin and at the same time not feel the weight of it or understand that the heart of God is so very contrary to what it is that he's doing. And so you need to remove that enabling by now throwing him out and letting him back into the dominion of Satan in a way uh, in which Jesus um, is the one that is doing that to him. Get him out, remove him from the covering of the church and let him feel the fear and the shame of what he is doing. And what will be the result of that? That Paul says he says that it's for the destruction of the flesh. Now, He doesn't say for the destruction of the man. He doesn't say so that he'll die and burn in hell and everybody will fear and know and no one will ever do that again. That's not the heart of Paul and that's not the heart of God. The heart behind this is that this man evidently is in a place where he's living, trying to live in two worlds and that he is living in a way wherein his flesh is dominating him but he wants the glory of the kingdom that's to come. And what Paul is saying is that he needs to go out and he needs to sin himself into the realization that sin destroys and that God doesn't call sin, sin because he doesn't like it, but God calls sin, sin because it's bad. The Bible says that whoever you yield yourselves as a servant to obey, his servant you are. Meaning that if you give yourself over to something, then you are giving yourself over slavery to that something. And in that you're being made a slave to that something, you're relinquishing not only control over your own uh, actions in that thing, but you're, you're letting go of your control to remove yourself even from the bondage to that thing. And what you find is that when you're swallowed up in sin, you don't have the authority or the ability to come and go as you please. If that sin wants to take you somewhere, then that sin is gonna take you somewhere. And let me tell you where that sin is gonna take you. It's gonna take you to the destruction of your flesh. And that's something that every one of us can see in the context of our own world in a very clear way. We see the outcomes of that in the society that we live in even right now as we look around at it and see broken families and broken homes and broken lives and broken souls because of what that sin does. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, at the end of the chapter in verse 24, the apostle Paul exhorting young Timothy says that the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure, perhaps, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. And what Paul is saying there is that when you find yourself caught up in Satan's snare, you are going to be taken down a path against your will, even though you think you're doing it in your own freedom, that is going to leave you on the other side of it stripped and naked and empty But that the purpose of that in God's mind is not that that your life would be destroyed, but that your flesh would be destroyed, that you might see the wickedness of sin and that you might then turn your heart and life completely over to God who can then break the power of that sin in your life and he can rebuild and restore with what's left over. And so Paul is saying that man needs to be delivered unto Satan, raked over his coals and brought to his senses, not so that his life will be destroyed, but as he says there in the second half of the verse, he says, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Is that he's to be like the prodigal son and brought back to his sentence, uh, senses so that there, are, there is repentance and restoration in his life well he goes on in verse six and he begins to talk about now why this matters why does it matter so much that we be sexually pure as christians he says first of all in verse six he says your glorying is not good and that's kind of like if you can imagine yourself in the doctor's office for just a minute and you've given all of your um, you know, conditions and the things that are going on and you've spoken them to the doctor and he looks at it all over and he hears what you're doing and your lifestyle and your diet and what you're eating. And then he looks at you and he says, this is not good. And that's exactly what Paul says. He goes, you're glorying. Your response to this is not good. It's a sign that there is something much deeper, uh, a, a much bigger problem that's going on in this thing. And then he says this. He says, don't you know, know you not that a little leaven or yeast, leavens the whole lump. It's an illustration, a picture that is used frequently throughout the Bible. And that is that of yeast being introduced into a batch of dough. And when you mix even just a little bit of yeast into a batch of dough, that yeast will work itself into the entire lump of dough and it will begin a corrupting process whereby it begins to break it down. And yeast in the Bible is always a picture of sin and what sin does in the life of an individual or in the life of a nation or in the life of a church. That if sin is allowed in, even in small amounts, then that sin will multiply and it will breed more corruption until the entirety of the lump of dough is corrupted. And so what Paul is saying to this church that's allowing this sin inside of it is he's saying, don't you know that what you are enabling is not a man just to continue in his sin, but you're also enabling the corruption of your own fellowship to a point where it will be completely useless in the thing wherein God ordained it and established it to be. He says, purge out, therefore, the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. He says, you don't want to have an influence within your church or your congregation or even within your very lives that's going to destroy and breed more corruption within you or amongst you. Therefore, get it out of your life so that you might be a new lump because, he says, as you are unleavened, because of Jesus. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now watch this in verse eight. He says, therefore, let us keep the feast speaking of the feast of Passover, which was dovetailed with the feast of unleavened bread. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so he pulls this illustration, this picture out of the feasts of Israel from the Old Testament. And here's what they would do uh, on the night before the Passover each year Um, in each household is that they would go through the house and the whole family would do it and they would purge out every bit of leaven or yeast that they could find in the whole house every bit of dough every bit of bread every cracker every article of food every grain that had it in it every grain alcohol anything at all that was fermented and that had yeast in it wine raisins grape juice they would purge it out of the house and they would make a game out of searching to find every bit of it that they could find and so they would do that they would go through the homes and they would remove all of the leaven but the game wasn't over they would go in then for a second passing and they would search even deeper they would look for drawer basins where perhaps maybe wine spilled or grain alcohol spilled and they would say up it's corrupted by the leaven and they would make a game out of trying to get every last piece of leaven out of the house that they possibly could and then once that was over it was a picture of them searching their lives searching their hearts to remove every trace of iniquity or sin or that which breeds corruption and iniquity within them that they could. And what Paul is saying to them is this. He's saying, listen, you are unleavened bread because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, when God looks at you, he sees yeast-free dough. That's it. So, Paul is saying, let your life line up with what you are. It should be a regular part of our Christian experience that we don't settle for where we're at in him, but that there be a constant searching of our hearts for the removal of those things that would breed corruption within us. He talks about two types of leaven. He says, first of all, the old leaven. The old leaven is the things that have been ingrained in us for a long time. Things that we think are a part of us that could never be separated from us. That's just the old leaven. It's a part of who I am. He says, get it out. Then he talks about a different type of leaven in verse eight. He says, not just the old leaven, but also the leaven of malice and wickedness. You notice that word malice. It means ill will or evil, but it doesn't speak concerning any specific type of ill will or evil. And the reason for that is because it's speaking of that which exists within the heart underneath the surface where no one else can see he's saying don't settle to just be unleavened in the things that people can see well the outside of my life is good all of the outward things are there i'm no longer drinking i'm no longer cursing i'm no longer carousing i'm no longer doing those things that are that are explicitly unchristian but underneath that where no one can see there's still hatred there's still bitterness There's still lust within my heart. There's still uncontrolled appetite in whole areas of my life that haven't been brought under the subjection of the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul is saying, don't be content to just look good outwardly and have some of those surface things handled. But go deeper and let the Spirit of God sanctify things in you that you thought never could be sanctified. He says, purge out the leaven, both the seen, the old, and the old and the unseen, the leaven of malice and of wickedness, which is the outward expression of those invisible things that are in our heart. So not with malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know what sincerity is? Sincerity in this context, very plainly, is just an open window or an open blind. And what that means is that I come before God and I say, God, every part of my heart, let it be opened up before you. Let there be no closet or cupboard or drawer or or place under the carpet or anything within my life, not an attitude, not an affection, nothing, Lord, that you don't have free access to come into with your Holy Spirit and change and take out and make whatever you want. Let me hang on to nothing. That's what it means to be sincere. And then truth means, according to his truth, that I'm gonna sincerely allow God to make me what he wants me to be and then I'm going to follow through with it in his truth or with his truth. And he says, that's the way that we're supposed to be. And then he goes on in verse nine and he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle. And so he speaks of it in the past tense. and that tells us this is that this isn't the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. This is at best second Corinthians and second Corinthians then would be third Corinthians. But he says, I wrote to you not to keep company with fornicators. Yet, he says, not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. You would have to leave the planet if you were going to make it a part of your life that I'm never going to eat with or keep company with someone who's in sexual sin or someone who's covetous or an idolater or drunkard or extortioner. He said, you wouldn't be able to do that. You'd have to shut yourself in a room and never go out if that was the position that you were gonna take. But now he explains, but now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one, no, not to even eat. Now, the reason for that is not because we're to have as Christians a holier-than-thou mentality that, well, I, am, I, I, I would be defiled if I was in your, your presence, being that I know the, the condition of your life and what it is that you're... That's not the idea of what Paul is saying here. He's saying that by giving yourself to open fellowship with people that are called Christians that are doing these things, you are condoning and bringing... Um, validity to the lifestyle that they're living even though they are not accepted by god underneath those behaviors you're condoning it you're enabling them so to speak you also run the risk in that position of being influenced by that evil yourself well that you know this person they're living this way and yet they still seem like their life is kind of together and they still seem happy they still seem joyful everything's going their business is going just fine so what's wrong with that And Paul is saying that there needs to be a distinction, a separation that is made between the holy and the profane, both for the sake of the sinner, that they might be brought to repentance, the sinning Christian, and also for the Christian, that they not be drawn away in the error of the wicked. And here's why, verse 12, for what have I to do to judge those also that are outside? Do not you judge them that are within. In other words, Paul says, I have no business looking at the sinning world and judging their behavior and evaluating it in in, in relation to anything. What would I expect from a sinner? I expect them to sin. What do I expect from an unregenerate person? I I expect them to act like unregenerate persons because that's exactly what they are. When's the last time you cleaned a fish before you caught it? You can't, you've got to catch it first and then you can remove the scales and remove, you know, the filth and all the rest. And so Paul's saying, I have no business judging anybody outside in the world. How would I win them if I'm not integrated in some way with them in things? But if someone is called a Christian, he says, then very definitely do I have a responsibility to judge those that are within. Now you say, oh, did you just say judge those that are within? Is Paul contradicting Matthew 7, 1? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Didn't Jesus say that we're not to judge? Doesn't the Bible say that we're to judge nothing before the time? We are not to speak in judgment things that we don't know concerning, nor concerning outcomes that we have no hand in producing or understanding in other words i can't look at anyone and say you're going to hell because i don't know if they're going to go to hell or not that's what jesus means it's final condemnation but most people ignore the fact that just a few verses later in matthew chapter 7 jesus said these words he said you will know them by their fruits that is those that profess to know me but yet don't in actuality He says, do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? No, absolutely not. You would never expect that you would do that. And if someone said, hey, I want to sell you a grapevine and it was filled with prickers and burrs, you would say, that's not a grapevine. You're just looking at something that they're claiming is something else. And you're saying, that's not what that is. And Jesus said that that's a responsibility that we have as Christians. Not that we're to judge people condemningly or prop ourselves up against their behaviors, but we're to evaluate lives and say, listen, this is what a Christian is. I know it because I see it in the Bible. I know it because Christ is in me. I know what's acceptable behavior before God and before men. And what's coming out of your life is not that. And no matter what you want to call yourself, or where you want to say that you fellowship, or what it is that you agree with doctrinally concerning what you profess as your religion. If in your life, things contrary to that are coming out, then you are not what you profess. And that is not judgment in the illegitimate sense. It's evaluation of profession versus behavior. And that is something that we are all called to do. Paul says, I have no business judging those that are without. That's God's business. But if someone is within the church and they present the potential to corrupt a body of believers through whom Jesus Christ wants to magnify and express himself to a lost and dying world, and the sin that that person is bringing into that fellowship of believers is corrupting its influence and tarnishing its witness in a society, then Paul says, as a shepherd, I have not only the right but the responsibility to call sin sin what it is and to remove the sinning brother so that the testimony and the strength of that church can be what it's ordained to be. And so Paul says, this isn't just my responsibility. This is your responsibility too as the body of Christ. We're not to evaluate from the perspective that we are better than anyone else, but we are to be stewards and protectors of the reputation of God amongst people. His people. And he says, therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now he digresses for just a moment in the first eight verses of chapter six, then he comes back to the subject of fornication. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law or to court before the unjust, that is, the judges of the world and not before the saints. In other words, there were conflicts that were taking place between the Christians in Corinth and the way that they were handling those inter-church conflicts was by going to worldly judges and courts to have the things uh, adjudicated and, 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 and balanced out. And Paul says, are you crazy? What in the world are you thinking by doing things that way. That is absolutely absurd. And it's absurd for five reasons. Notice in verse two, he says, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? The destiny for every one of us is that we are going to be with Jesus in that final judgment when he lays sentence upon the world uh, for its deeds. We will be with him in that. God has made you and I to have a capacity for understanding and for discernment and for wisdom that's on a level that goes beyond anything else. And he's saying that, listen, you're gonna judge the world. And if the world shall be judged by you, are you then unworthy or, or, or without the weight to judge even the smallest matters? I mean, when you weigh the final ultimatum that this world is headed for against the petty conflicts that we have in this life well that guy didn't pay the bill that he was supposed to pay or we agreed on this and he didn't do it and he was going to sell me his truck and i was going to finish his basement and his truck was broken and yet i did you know and these 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 squabbles that can arise up within the church these little things he's saying listen if we have the capacity by the spirit of god to judge people in their eternal destiny then can't you muster up the spiritual maturity and wisdom to be able to adjudicate something so simple as a worldly matter? He said, we're gonna judge the world. Furthermore, verse three, know you not that we shall judge angels, how much more than things that are pertaining to this life. Part of what we were made for is for a level of discretion that exceeds even that of the angelic realm. And that even though we're subservient to that realm now, The Bible says that we outrank them in position before the throne of God, both now and in in eternity. So you're gonna judge angels. Furthermore, he says, if you then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them or do you set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church? Now, you could look at this two ways. Paul could either be saying, on one hand, he could be saying, listen, if our capacity is as gray as it is, then find the person in the church who's the least, who's the weakest, who knows nothing, and make them the judge over these matters. And in a way, that probably would work. I mean, because sometimes the the matters are so simple. There's such logic. And our emotions get so wrapped into a thing that it becomes confusing. But bring it to a child and say, he did this, he did this, who's right? Oftentimes the child could do it. On the other hand, what Paul could be saying here is he's saying, listen, if you have these matters that are going on between you as Christians, why would you take them to those who are the least esteemed? That is the worldly judges. They don't think like we do. They don't have the spirit of God like we do. They certainly don't have a a desire to be equitable like we do, or at least like we should. So why would you take it to them? It doesn't make sense. He says, I speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. You're taking the smallest matters and you're putting putting them before them that have no concern and really they have no ability. And what you're doing is you are revealing your own folly and you're ruining your witness. And you're bringing things to a point where the judge who's hearing those cases is looking at you and looking at your profession and looking at your church, and they're saying, I don't want to see another Christian anywhere (laughs) ever again. The the crazy things that are brought before me by these Christians. And so what Paul says to them is, listen, when these things come up between brothers, settle them in-house. Find a mature brother. Find someone who has a little bit of discernment. It only takes a little bit of discernment. And lay these things out and work them out within the church and restore unity where there's the potential for division so that your witness is not tarnished and your folly is not exposed. He says, now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another taking each other to court why do you not rather take wrong why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded do you realize that that is exactly what god did by sending his son jesus into this world there was an issue a squabble between god and mankind it was because of the fall and it was because of sin and guess who was at fault it wasn't god It was us we were at fault because we sinned against God and yet God wasn't going to lower his standard of righteousness to reconcile in the relationship and man was certainly not in a position where he was going to raise his standard of righteousness and agree with God concerning his condition and so man was separated from God but God wanted to restore unity within a relationship and he wanted love to cover a multitude of sins so do you know what God did He figured out a way to look at mankind and say, fine, I was wrong. And he did that by becoming a man and paying the penalty, absorbing it within himself. He, in a sense, God himself stood before the judge and said, I'm guilty, I'll take the punishment. And then he took it. The debt was paid and he said, now the breach has been repaired and man can come back into a relationship with God. There's never a more Christ-like expression or attitude that we can have as when we allow ourselves to bear the wrong even when we think we're right. Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, he was God, thinking it not robbery to be called equal with God. He was called God and he wasn't stealing anything by doing it because he was God. Yet, the Bible says, as God, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. And then he humbled himself further and he picked up a cross and he absorbed in himself the penalty for the sins of humanity. And he says, let that mind be in you. Suffer yourself, allow yourself, resolve within yourself, I'm gonna bear the wrong in this thing for the sake of saving the relationship sparing God's reputation and keeping unity in a church that is beautified by unity and torn apart by division I'm wrong Paul's saying suffer yourself to be defrauded he says no you won't do that verse 8 you do wrong and you defraud and that you do not just to the world but you do it to your very brethren what is it about us that we refuse to to humble ourselves it is so hard isn't it i love the verse in the book of job when his friends are seeking to just get him to confess some sin they're saying come on job look at you you're sitting on a pile of broken clay with sores all over your body comforting yourself by scratching with broken pieces of pots i mean you're obviously wrong you need to confess your sins to god and job not being able to find any reason within his mind or his life for the things that he's going through. He says, though he slay me, yet I will praise him, but I will maintain my righteousness. What? Are you out of your mind? Look at you. You're gonna maintain your righteousness? And it wasn't until God intervened at the end of the story and said, sit down, Job, I wanna talk to you for a minute. And he begins to lay his case out before Job. He says, Job, where were you when I formed man? Were you there when the sons of God, the angels danced for joy at the creation? Do you understand the path that a lightning bolt takes? Have you seen the treasuries of snow that have been stored up and reserved against the day of judgment? Do you have any concept at all what you're talking about? He does that for two chapters. God just goes on and on and on. Job, tell me about this. Tell me about the weather systems. Tell me about the water. Tell me about Leviathan. Tell me about the dragon that sneezes and fire comes out of the mouth. Do you know how that works, Job? Explain it to me if you can. Tell me, Mr. Righteous Man. And in the end, Job saw who he was in comparison with God, not in comparison with man, Sometimes when we compare ourselves with man, we look pretty good. But in comparison with God, he saw himself and he said, I repent. He says, I have sinned. I had heard of you at the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And God said, now we've got things in the right perspective. In the right. What is it about us that we say, I will maintain that I am right in this? Listen, even if you're right, you're wrong. So embrace it and receive it and let there be healing and reconciliation within the relationship. Then Paul comes back and he says in verse nine, he says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Some people need to hear that because there's many that believe that everyone inherits the kingdom of God. That it doesn't matter what you do or the way that you live, ultimately in the end, love wins and everybody gets in in the end. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And if the Bible says don't be deceived, then it's quite possible for us to be deceived, isn't it? He says neither fornicators, those that are given to sexual immorality, nor idolaters, those that worship other gods, And another God is anything that you trust in or hope in or rely upon or look to or draw strength and comfort from other than the true and living God. Nor adulterers, those that go outside of the marriage covenant, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, both speaking of the homosexual lifestyle, nor thieves, those that steal, nor covetous, those that constantly need more, they're insatiated, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now watch what he says here. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Now, when we read that list of things that Paul equates with fallen man, every single one of us falls somewhere in that category. And for most of us, we fall many places within that category. That's what we are when we're fallen. That's what we live for. That's what we know. It's our very nature to be fornicators and adulterers and abusers of ourselves and thieves and revilers and covetous and and all. That's what we are. And Paul says, you're no different there in Corinth. You were these things. But something has come into your life that has changed you from what you were when you were those things and has made you something entirely different. He says, but now you are washed. That is that the stain and the effect of those sins and that destruction has been removed from your life, not by anything that you've done, but by something that's been done to you. But you are sanctified. To be sanctified means that you have been separated or removed from that lifestyle. And now you have been called sanct or holy or belonging to God. That's the category that you now occupy. But you are justified. Justified means that what you earned in the process of your sin has been paid for by someone else. In other words, the penalty that you had coming to you was given to someone else. And the result of that is that you now are justified. Your fine or your debt has been paid. And all of that is in the name of the Lord Jesus and it's been done by the spirit of our God. Now, what does that mean? It means this. It means that when God saves you, he doesn't save you to leave you the way that you were before he saved you. He saved you so that he could break the power of sin within your life and he could recreate you in Christ Jesus for good works. That he could form the character and nature of Christ according to holiness and righteousness in you that you could never have produced within yourself. That's what he saved you for. And so you don't have to say, well, I'm a slave to these sins because that's just who I am. No, that's not just who you are. You are no longer fallen in the the nature of Adam. You are now newborn in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. That's your identity. And thus you're to bear the likeness of the spirit that is now in you. Some people will say, and they'll ask the question, they'll say, well, someone who struggles with a particular sin, let's say homosexuality, Listed here in this uh, um, list that Paul gives concerning the sins of the flesh and the sins of fallen mankind. You say, well, they can't help the way that they are. They can't help their, their, their tendencies and the way that they uh, um, feel towards a certain sex or towards the same sex in that instance. It's just the way that they are and we need to be understanding and have compassion. Listen, Paul would not hear that not for one moment. Paul would not speak condemningly on the homosexual either and say that they're lost. He would look at them and he would say, listen, you may be a homosexual. I was a reviler. I was an idolater. I was covetous and given over to lust. And that's what I was. That was my tendency and there was nothing that I could do about it. But when I let Jesus Christ into my life and I gave him access into those things that I could not change myself, His blood and his spirit were powerful enough to work in me a change that nothing else could work. And I am no longer those things, not because of me, but because of him. And just because your sin is something that you think is deeper or unchangeable, it doesn't negate his power or his ability to change it. God does not accept sin, whether it be heterosexual fornication or homosexual licentiousness. He doesn't accept it. What he has done is he's made provision to forgive it through the person of his son on the cross. And he's provided power to change it through his Holy Spirit that can come into a life and make us what we cannot make ourselves. And for any one of us to justify sinful behavior on the basis or the account that this is just the way that I am, we are denying God his power in our life to do what he says that he can do. And thus Paul would say that the time will come when men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and boasters and proud and rude and blasphemers and disobedient to parents and unthankful and unholy, truce breakers without natural affection, despisers of those that are good, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power. And when we justify sin on the basis of personality or the way that I am, we are denying the power of God within our lives to do what he said he can do. Paul says you were these things but you are no longer all things are lawful unto me because I'm not under the covenant of the law, but all things are not expedient or helpful or necessary. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul says there's another element in all of this that many of you seem to be ignoring. He's saying, listen, if you give yourself to a particular sin and you justify it for any reason, then you are allowing yourself to be brought under the power and under the influence of that sin. And that sin now controls your life. And you say, well, I don't really mind that so much because I really like the sin. And so to me, that's not an issue of bondage. That's an issue of liberty. That might be the way that you feel right now. But when you're in bondage to something like that, you lose the ability to remove yourself from its influence or its power in your life. And so you're in bondage, not just to the action, but that sin will determine and dictate what you do. And if you've ever been in bondage to a sin, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Paul says, there are things that I can justify or get away with, but I personally refuse to give myself to anything that will bring me under its power And it has the potential to destroy my life. And now getting back to fornication, Paul is gonna say, this is not a sin that you wanna be given over to. Notice in verse 13, he says, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for The body you say what in the world is Paul trying to say here's what Paul's trying to say he's saying that there are things that God has made and there are uses for those things that God has made and he uses the illustration of food and the belly food is the thing that was made and that food was made for the belly those two things if one doesn't exist the other doesn't serve a purpose If you have a belly, but you don't have food, then that belly can't survive. What are you going to fill it with? If you have food, but no bellies, then what's the purpose of the food? So you have something that's been made and then you have a purpose for that something. And what Paul says, but really at the end of the day, they're both going to be destroyed. So what difference does it make? In other words, if you misuse food, you have a belly, I have a belly, and all of us know what it means to misuse food. We eat too much of it. We eat the wrong uh, you know, stuff that we're not supposed to eat. <laughs> you know, we, we ignore our health by and large. We don't use the food for what the food was made for, which is for our strength. We use it because we like it and we gorge ourselves with it. And Paul says, you can do that. That's a liberty that you have. And at the end of the day, that's gonna have very little consequence within your life. You might die earlier. You might not like the way you feel most of the time. your image concerning yourself might not be very good those things are consequences of it but at the end of the day you're going to get a new body and you could say eat drink and be merry and that's good food belly both be destroyed no consequence however there are other things that god has made and he's made something for that something that he has made and if you abuse that the consequence is going to be much greater He says the body was not made for fornication. And if you're using your body for sexual immorality, then you are using your body for something that God didn't make it for. Your body was made for God. Your body was made as a temple or a dwelling place for the spirit of God to come live inside and make you one with himself. We exist for his purpose. But if we abuse that purpose and we give ourselves to the sexual immorality, then the consequences of that are not immaterial like they would be with just food and stomach. The consequences of sexual immorality are eternally reaching, not just in this life. He says, God has both raised up the Lord and he will also raise up us by, us up by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Don't you know that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Paul says there's two things right now that you can't undo once you, once you do them as it concerns sexual immorality is that when you are sexual with another person, you are becoming one with that person. You are taking, in a sense, a glass of pink dye and a glass of blue dye, and you're pouring the contents of those two containers into one common container, and it is absolutely impossible for you to ever separate again the pixels of those colors back into their collective jars. You have forever joined something together that can never now be separated, and you're gonna carry that with you forever. That doesn't change. It's unchangeable. The second thing that you're doing is that you're taking the spirit of the Lord Jesus that lives inside of you and you're joining it now, you're taking God and you're making God have sex or sexual relations with a stranger outside of any covenant that's ordained by him. So you're saying, Jesus, I just want you to do this with me and this person. Now we say that, we go, don't say that, don't say that. But that's what it is. Paul's saying, don't you understand what you're doing when you give yourself to this sin? He says, the two will be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. If we're one with him, we're bringing him into it. So therefore, verse 18, flee fornication, run from it. Every sin that a man doeth is outside the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body what you are doing and if your body belongs to the lord then that sin carries with it eternal consequences not to say that you're going to go to hell or that you can't be forgiven all of that it's not the unpardonable sin that's not what paul's saying but the consequences of it carry forward very definitely don't you know that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is in you which you have of god and you are not your own for you are bought with a price Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul says this, listen, you aren't your own. You do not belong to yourself. You have been bought with a price. You know what that price was? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he says price here, he's not speaking of a generic price. You were not bought wholesale. Do you know that? You were bought very individually. And Jesus Christ made a personal account of every sin that you and I have ever committed. He agreed to pay for them, each one. And he says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, you're to glorify your God, uh, God in your body. So in the conclusion of this, uh, now the question that remains for us in our day and age, as we consider the world that we live in and we consider the influence that sexual immorality has in our culture and the tremendous pressure that that part of our culture places upon even the church, how in the world do we defend ourselves against it when the onslaught is so incredibly strong? The Apostle Paul gives to us throughout these two chapters four things that every single one of us must do by the power of the Spirit of God within our life. And they are these by way of summary. Number one is that we are to purge out the old leaven again the old leaven is those things in us that we think can never be removed from us I had the picture in my mind while I was studying this of uh, you know maybe a bottle of, of wine or a bottle of uh, something fermented grain alcohol or something that had yeast in it spilling in a cupboard in my house and in that spillage the, 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 the material, the, the shelf material was saturated with it. And so now what's happened is that that leaven has become a part of the very substance of the home. And you think, well, I can take things out of the cupboard, but the problem isn't with the, 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 the stuff in the cupboard. The problem is the cupboard itself. And, and there's many of us that we would look at our lives and we would say, yeah, it's one thing for me to, you know, I can remove pornography. I can remove you know, certain things that, 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 that are my lifestyle. But there's things deeper than that that I can't remove. There's a part of my personality and things from my past and things ingrained in me that I just can't get out. Listen, the Bible says that if we would confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word cleanse means to catheterize. To be catheterized means that waste is removed when you can't remove it yourself. You ever had a catheter before? I have. Didn't feel it go in, felt it come out. But be rest assured of this, is that every single one of us has things within our lives that we are not able to remove. Things from the old life that are outside of our power. And the key to purging out the old leaven is not trying harder. It's not resolving deeper. The key to purging out old leaven is bringing yourself to the Lord Jesus who has power to cleanse and saying, God, my heart is open. And I am willing that you would have access to every little fiber of my being. And there are things in me that are so deeply ingrained, I don't think I could ever be changed. But I know that you, by your blood and the power of your Holy Spirit, can reach anywhere and change anything. And God, if you are willing, I give you permission to do whatever you want within my life. And that is something that is so incredibly necessary for you and I to be doing in the day and age in which we live. And every one of us in some way is touched by this issue. It's paramount that the old leaven be purged out Secondarily, Paul would counsel us to remove ourselves from every influence of that sin within our lives. For the Corinthian church, it was not to fellowship with the sinning brother. For you and I, it might be that someone needs to go out from our church or out from our circle or out from our sphere of influence. But for you and I, it might be much far-reaching, much more far-reaching than that. We have access to the influence of this sin everywhere we turn. Every time we turn on the television, every time we open a magazine, every time we log onto the internet, every time we read the news, every time we have a conversation, we are exposed to the onslaught of sexual temptation that this world gives. And what Paul would say is that if you willingly expose yourself to that influence, then you are a fool because it's only a matter of time before it finds its way in. Number three, the Apostle Paul would say this concerning our defense against this sin is that we must be those that stand upon knowledge, not upon understanding. Seven times in chapters five and six, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, know ye not, or don't you know? He does not once say, do you not understand? And there is a world of difference between knowledge and understanding. Knowledge is facts. Understanding is reason. And as Christians, we must stand upon facts and not reason. You say, what do you mean? Listen, there are many Christians that say, I don't understand why God says that sex is restricted to marriage between one man and one woman for life. I don't understand why sexual immorality is wrong. I don't understand why I can't fool around with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or go this far and no further. I don't understand why. Listen, I don't understand why either. You say, why in the world did God create a drive as powerful as that and then say, this is where that drive is to be used and don't use it outside of that? And if you ever get understanding on that, bring it to me because I don't have a clue. But the point is this, is that if we as Christians say, well, I'm gonna wait until I understand why God tells me to do something and then I'll do it, then you and I are gonna find our lives destroyed before that understanding ever comes. We are called to walk by fact. God says, don't do it. And so we build our lives upon what he said, not what I understand or what I feel. And that's imperative, not just in this issue, but in every issue. We must stand upon knowledge, not understanding. And then finally, number four, when push comes to shove, flee, run, run from sexual sin. The price of failure is extremely high and the reward of success is very great. The musicians can come as we close, but I can't help but think of Joseph as we go through uh, this chapter and, and we look at these things. And I think of that young man who stood up against the strongest expression of sexual temptation that any human being could ever face as a young man of the age of 17 with no accountability and the pressures of a very attractive, wealthy woman who wanted his attention. And he stood up against that temptation and the price that he paid for standing up against that temptation is that he lost every physical, tangible thing that he had in this world, which really wasn't much. But it says that he sat in a prison cell, and it says these words. It says that God was with him. And to stand against any temptation, no matter what it would cost or how much it hurts, and to know that on the other side of that, whatever it costs us, God is with us. The reward is very, very great. And when you look at the outcome of that life that was given to holiness in that way, it's matchless and priceless. May God in this time, in our world, in our church, and for our lives, give us wisdom and strength to do his will in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray it be written in our hearts. We love you for speaking truth to us in a world full of lies. And may we find power tonight, Lord, to overcome this sin, this temptation that we find to be so great within us. And I pray tonight, Lord, if there's anyone here in this room tonight that's struggling, that their palms are sweating because they know within their lives there's things, that there's defilement, that they're unclean. I pray in Jesus' name tonight that they would find the faith to reach up to heaven, to ask for a fresh washing in the blood of Jesus Christ, to lay that sin at the foot of the cross and to find healing restoration and forgiveness lord would you hear the prayers that are being lifted to you right now father the doors and cupboards and drawers that are being opened by so many in this room right this second i pray lord jesus that your sweet holy spirit and your precious blood would come in and that there would be change lord in areas where maybe we thought there never could be or never would be lord we know that only you can and we look to you for it We choose to believe you tonight concerning these things and we ask that the effect of that belief would show forth in our lives and in our church and in our world. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.